Welcome to the Activist Insight podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Your monthly magazine for September 2020 is out now and features a look at how fundraising has changed during the COVID-19 pandemic in an era of social distancing and economic uncertainty. In today's episode, we'll hear from Activist Insight Monthly's Jason Booth on fundraising and later on, John Reeton about ESG. So Jason, thank you for joining me. Uh, Thanks for having me. There has been so much turmoil in the markets and the economy. How has that affected fundraising by shareholder activists? It's put a damper on shareholder activism fundraising this year to a degree, largely because it's made it much more difficult to raise money from institutional shareholders. Uh, Given the uh, turmoil in the markets and the fact that social distancing has made due diligence more difficult, many endowments such as pensions and family offices are actually very very difficult to commit money to funds that they haven't already done so. So as a result, a lot of the activist funds that are raising money have been forced more than ever to go to shareholders, uh, limited partners who are already invested in their fund, who have already done the due diligence and are familiar with the investor and the portfolio. And that's where they're going. One way they've been getting around that is by looking for other means to raise money, such as issuing debt was one way. Another way which has become very popular are special purpose acquisition vehicles, which are basically listed companies that are basically created and listed with the purpose of acquiring a private company. So that private company has taken public. And we've seen a lot of that. Those are quicker way to raise a lot of money and something that the activists have taken to very strongly this year. So are funds raising as much as they did in previous years? Well, conventionally, no. Hedge funds in general have seen an outflow so far this year. And that's sort of a continuation from what you saw last year. Uh, That said, event-driven funds, that's funds that invest on the basis of either taking advantage of an event or causing an event, which would actually cover most activist funds, have actually um, posted a net increase in assets up about $4 billion, according to figures we've seen. That's in the first half of the year. And that's uh, pretty much steady from where they were a year ago. Uh, They were raising money in that respect then. But in July, we saw quite a large surge in money coming into hedge funds of all kind, uh, particularly to multi-strategy funds, which would include most of the funds that fall into the category of partial activists. And event-driven has also continued to see money coming in. So it'll be interesting to see if that continues going forward, and it's too early to say. Now, on top of that, we have money from these special acquisition vehicles. And so far this year, about $38 billion worth of these companies were listed in the United States. A substantial portion, maybe about 7 or $8 billion of it, may have gone to activist-related funds. Which funds have been raising money? On the conventional money-raising side, Engaged Capital, Glenn Welling's fund, has raised uh, well over $100 million since April, mostly from existing shareholders, as I mentioned before. 
And they're already deploying some of that money. Uh, we saw them just recently launch a campaign at healthcare service company Evolent, and that was quite interesting. We've seen some of the specialist funds raising money, Kimmeridge Oil raising money to invest in the oil sector, and Landon Building, which is, as the name suggests, that invest primarily in in companies with real estate assets have also uh, been raising money. We've also seen some kind of non-traditional activists raising money to get into activism. Aries Capital, based out of Los Angeles, raised over $3 billion earlier this year for an activist fund, which is interesting to see, and we'll see where they go with that. But some of the other bigger funds have not been. Elliott Management has not raised any additional money this year, and uh, other funds are, are going sort of different directions. Third point, Daniel Loeb's firm has raised a lot of money for a uh, structured credit fund to invest in the debt of companies that one would suggest have issues. And that could turn activists. They've done this in the past in the 2008 financial crisis. They took a big debt position in Delphi, the auto parts maker, when it was facing bankruptcy. And they converted that into equity and had an activist campaign there. And as I said earlier, we've, you know, they've got the SPAC being raised um, besides Pershing which raised about $4 billion. Starboard Value has now raised a SPAC or the process of raising it, and it's oversubscribed and nearly $500 million. So we're seeing quite a lot of action there. So should we think of the SPACs as an extension of activism or a change in strategy? That's a great question, and it's really too early to tell. It's fair to say that these are activist funds, and any time they raise money and they put money into a company, no matter how they raise the money, they are going to probably follow the same strategies that they had before. They won't obviously have to run a proxy fight per se, but if they own a substantial amount of the stock, they will certainly be watching the companies and pushing for them to make the changes they want. I thought it was interesting. Last week, we saw reports that Airbnb, the home rental company, which is still private, apparently turned down an offer from Pershing Square's SPAC to merge and be taken public by them, saying that they would rather go the traditional route with an IPO. We have no comments on this, but it would seem like a company might be concerned about having an activist owning a large portion of their company because they know that by doing so, they will have less control over it themselves and will have to follow the guidance of Pershing Square, which has a long track record of being very demanding with its portfolio companies. Joining me now is Activist Insight Monthly's John Reeton, who wrote this month's ESG Corner a regular feature dedicated to environmental, social or governance issues that might not fit the traditional activist bracket. Sir John, the rejection of Electronic Arts' say-on-pay proposal was a big win. First of all, can you just explain what a say-on-pay is? So say-on-pay refers to proposals that concern executive pay. Uh, The proposals are designed to seek permission either on a binding or advisory basis for compensation directors and executives receive on top of their base salary. So essentially, these proposals focus on bonuses, cash allowances and any other incentive an executive is awarded by the company. Just how big a win then was it? It was a major win for CTW Investment. The investor managed to drum up 74% of votes against EA's say-on-pay proposal, while the company only received 6% of votes against for the same proposal the year before. The victory goes against the grain for the majority of say-on-pay proposals in the US as well. According to Proxy Insight, only 2% of US companies this year have failed to win majority support for executive pay proposals. 
just over 90% actually got more than 70% support. So what CTW managed to do was definitely bucking the trend. How much then has the COVID-19 pandemic helped union shareholders? Surprisingly, not that much. I spoke to CTW Executive Director Dieter Weisenegger, who explained that the executive pay has always been a long-standing issue with the investor. And the funds campaign against EA was actually sparked back in 2019 after EA announced mass layoffs at the company. So it seems that while the impact of COVID-19 has shone a light on some of the governance issues at companies, the demands that union shareholders have made throughout the pandemic aren't so much a direct consequence of COVID-19 as they are demands that are in line with the overall mission that many union general funds have made before and after the pandemic. And finally, John, will COVID have any lasting impacts on how union shareholders operate or how companies engage with them? It's tough to answer that with any certainty at the moment. I think like the wider activist environment, it's tough to see what the aftermath of the pandemic will actually be. From what I've heard from union shareholders, they don't believe the game for them will change that much. Union funds are going to continue to focus on executive pay and surrounding governance matters. They believe that companies are still going to try and push those proposals through. It seems that Coming out of this, while we can't be certain of what will happen after the pandemic is all clear and everything, it really does seem that union shareholders are quite focused on the areas that they want to focus on. What's going to be interesting to see, though, is that the more that union shareholders begin to push against companies is whether companies start to treat them more like traditional activists and become more aggressive in certain circumstances. Again, CTW is pretty confident that everyone kind of knows their role in this respect. So it seems that union shareholders are quite confident that they will still be able to work alongside companies rather than working against them. Now for some other stories you'll find in this month's magazine. Work management software company Smartsheet has so far failed to benefit from the shift to remote working by businesses. Despite its apparent usefulness to companies during the COVID-19 pandemic, its stock has not been a beneficiary thanks to rising costs and slowing growth. Combine that with a flush balance sheet and lack of boardroom defences, an activist investor could argue the company would be better off seeking a merger. Amazon or even Facebook would be moonshot candidates, but more realistically, communication-focused software-as-a-service companies such as Slack or Zoom video communications can improve their enterprise offerings by adding Smartsheet's project planning capabilities. The pandemic has produced widely divergent outcomes for both companies. Smartsheet has outperformed Slack since the latter went public in June 2019, while Zoom stock has quadrupled in value to an implausible $114 billion. Muddy Waters' Carson Block has called for Washington to crack down on fraudulent Chinese companies listed in the US, starting with GSX. Short sellers this year have been gunning for Chinese companies listed in the US, issuing 16 short reports against them as of August 17. Few have been more aggressive than Muddy Waters' research. Three of their five campaigns have been against Chinese companies, most notably Luckin Coffee. Luckin shows exactly why we need short sellers in the market, Block said in a note to Activist Insight Monthly, following the company's collapse in April. This is again a wake-up call for US policymakers, 
regulators and investors about the extreme fraud risk China-based companies pose to our markets, he added. Block's personal history with China may also play a role. After studying Chinese language at university, he launched a self-storage company in Shanghai in 2008, which lost a lot of money due in part to opaque local business practices. Shortly after that experience, he got into short investing, accusing most of his targets of fraud. The name of his firm even comes from the Chinese proverb, muddy waters make it easier to catch fish. Find out more about this story by downloading your copy of Activist Insight Monthly from our website. That's it for today's episode. If you like what you hear or want to read more, you can subscribe to Activist Insight Monthly by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. If you want something discussed on a future episode, please email press at activistinsight.com and join the conversation by using the hashtag ActivistInsightPodcast on both Twitter and Instagram. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul. Thank you for listening.